0: Tonight we come to the second part of Article Number 7, which deals with the Lord's Supper. The first part of it deals with baptism. And so take your Bible, and they're a key text that we're going to read in a moment as we look at those key texts. But another text that I would direct you to is found in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 26, verse 26 through verse 30. Interestingly, the Lord's Supper, its institution, its inauguration, is recorded in the synoptic Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It is not in the Gospel of John. Uh, and so that's something that is of an anomaly, uh, certainly a point of interest. But you do find it in all three of the first Gospels. And in Matthew chapter 26 and verse 26, here's what the Bible says. And as they were eating, they were eating the Passover meal, Jesus took bread, blessed, and broke it, and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat. This is my body. Then he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. For this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine. From now on until that day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. If you look at the notes that have been provided for you this evening, the first paragraph deals with the issue of Christian baptism. But it is the second paragraph that we give our attention to tonight, that being the ordinance of the Lord's Supper. And it's very simple. It's three lines of a single sentence. The Lord's Supper is a symbolic act of obedience. The phrase symbolic act is very important whereby members of the church through partaking of the bread and the fruit of the vine memorialize the death of the Redeemer and anticipate his second coming. And I do like that last statement, though there's more contained in the Lord's Supper than just that, as we will see, but it memorializes the death of the Redeemer, the Lord Jesus, and it anticipates his second coming. You then see that there in your notes a couple of or a number of key texts That deal with baptism, but move to the text that deal with the Lord's Supper. And you'll note one of the passages that I did not read from the Synoptic Gospels, Luke chapter 22, verses 19 and 20. And he took bread, gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, he also took the cup after supper, saying this is the new covenant. The new covenant, by the way, is a reference to Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 through 34, where the Bible says that God will take his law and put it into our hearts. And so Jesus draws upon that very important text. Also, it's alluded to uh, in Ezekiel chapter 36. So this is the cup, the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. And then Acts chapter 20, verse 7, now on the first day of the week, which of course would be Sunday, when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul, ready to depart the next day, spoke to them and continued his message until midnight. And the phrase to break bread most likely is a reference to the Lord's Supper. You have a similar phrase in Acts chapter 2 where you have the birth of the church on the day of Pentecost. But if you are a note taker, you put a star by the next text. Because the most full treatment that we have in the New Testament when it comes to the Lord's Supper is 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 through verse 29. And here is what Paul wrote to the church at Corinth. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, take, eat. And anticipating his coming again. So you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner. Will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself. And so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning, not rightly understanding and honoring the Lord's body. And that phrase, the Lord's body, could be a reference to the body of the Lord Jesus, but also, and I think uh, probably more likely, uh, a reference to the body of Christ, that is, his church. So, what do we discover then in our Confession of Faith, the Baptist Faith and Message 2000, concerning the doctrine of the Lord's Supper? The BFNM speaks of baptism and the Lord's Supper as ordinances. It uses that particular word. We don't call them sacraments. We call them ordinances. As noted in our last study back in December, an ordinance is an act that does four things. Number one, it was commanded by the Lord Jesus in the Gospels and given by him for his followers to practice. Secondly, it is passed on as a tradition by Jesus's authorized agents, that is the apostles, in the letters to the churches as well as what we see practiced in the book of Acts, for example, do we see baptism practiced in Acts? Yes. Do we see the Lord's Supper practiced in Acts? Yes. Do we see foot washing practiced in Acts? No. And that is one In fact you don't have it even addressed in any of the Pauline epistles. The letters of Peter, the letters of John, and so though there are a few Baptists, a good friend of David and mine, Timothy George, uh, believes that foot washing actually ought to be a third ordinance practiced by the church. Uh, Though I have great respect for uh, Dr. George, I would have to disagree with him, and I don't believe the biblical warrant for such a practice is found there. Thirdly, it was practiced by the early church in the history of the church as recorded in Acts, as I just alluded. And fourthly, the the ordinance pictures the atoning work of our Savior. Thus, only baptism and the Lord's Supper can be considered ordinances of the Christian church. Foot washing pictures cleansing, but it does not picture the sacrifice and the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. Baptism, as we previously noted, dramatically pictures our entering into covenant relationship with God through Jesus Christ. On the other hand, the Lord's Supper portrays our continuing in this relationship, which is why we are baptized only one time, but we observe the ordinance of the Lord's Supper again and again and again and again. And later in a moment, we'll address the question of, well, just how often ought we to observe the ordinance of the Lord's Supper? Well, note then the next paragraph. Various designations have been used for the Lord's Supper by different churches due to the fact the act is referred to in a variety of ways in the New Testament. And I highlight the five of them for you. These designations include the phrase breaking of bread, as we saw a moment ago. Secondly, communion, First Corinthians 10, 16. Uh, the Eucharist, which is more often found in your more liturgical denominations, such as the Catholic Church or the uh, Episcopal Church or the Lutheran Church, it comes from the Greek word, which simply means the giving of thanks. Uh, and it is an appropriate word, by the way. Fourthly, our common designation, the Lord's Supper, 1 Corinthians 11, 20. And then also the Lord's Table, 1 Corinthians 10:20 is 10:20. So you've got the reference to the breaking of bread, communion, Eucharist, Lord's Supper, and the Lord's Table. The accounts then in the gospel show that the Christian ceremony of the Lord's Supper had its roots in the Jewish Passover festival, as I noted just a moment ago. This festival was a ceremony observed by the Jewish people to remind them of the Exodus, that event when God rescued them from their 400 years of slavery in Egypt. And so there is a clear connection to Exodus chapter 12 and the Passover to what Jesus then inaugurated and instituted on the night in which he was betrayed, that being what we call the Lord's Supper. But through great miracles and displays of power, Yahweh brought them out of Egypt He rescued them from the cruel oppression of Pharaoh, brought them into a land they could call their own. Although by definition, the Exodus was a non-repeatable event. Its significance was preserved for future generations of Israelites by the institution of the ceremony of the Feast of Passover, celebrated every year at the spring equinox, which is also why uh, it moves around from year to year to year. Just before Jesus, though, was betrayed and handed over to the rulers to be crucified, he celebrated this, and I use the words of Mark Rathel here, this freedom meal with his 12 disciples. In other words, there's an analogy that is going to take place here between the freedom from slavery that took place. When the Egyptians were required to let go the Hebrew children in the same way, we also are released from bondage. We observe a freedom meal that recognizes that we've been set free from slavery to Satan, slavery to sin, a slavery to our flesh by the sacrifice, not of a lamb, Passover, Exodus 12, but by the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he turned the symbolism of the meal Into a brand new direction. In other words, he used the Passover festival to act out in symbolic drama the meaning of his coming death at the hands of the Jewish and Roman rulers. The unleavened bread and the wine the fruit of the vine were no longer symbols of deliverance from slavery in Egypt but they now picture him as the Passover lamb hence John can say in John chapter 1 and verse 29 behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world a clear reference to Jesus as the Passover lamb and so he is sacrificed as the Passover lamb for us that his people might be delivered from slavery to sin and to death and then indeed as the leader of a new exodus. There's beautiful parallelism there that we could develop more fully, but we do not have the time. But as the leader of a new exodus, he institutes then a new ceremony to commemorate it, and thereby we remember that again and again and again as we observe the Lord's Supper. Now, what can we learn from the most full in-depth treatment about the Lord's Supper 1 Corinthians 11:17 17 through 34. Well, there's six major themes, at least, that can be extracted from that text. Number one, saving sacrifice in the phrase, this is my body. On the night Jesus was arrested and betrayed, he broke bread and he was doing so. He said, this is my body, which is being given for you. The bread therefore represents the death of Jesus for His people. In fact, 1 Peter chapter 3 verse 18, for Christ died for sins for all, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring us to God. Jesus died in our place. He was the Passover lamb who was sacrificed to avert the messenger of death so that we might have life. And so Paul hands down this tradition and says to the Corinthians, when you take the bread, remember, this is the body which was given for you, a saving sacrifice. Secondly, the covenant. This is my blood. God had made a covenant with his people at Mount Sinai when he brought them out of Egypt. Thus, a relationship of love and loyalty and trust was established between God and the Hebrew people. He would be their God. They would be his people. This covenant relationship, initiated by sacrifice, tragically, had been broken by the people. God was faithful, but they were unfaithful. They had not followed God's law. They had not kept faith with God. And therefore, the covenant became null and void, and they suffered. Relax, that's to misspeak. Uh, uh, that's to misspeak. The covenant was maintained. But instead of receiving the blessings of the covenant, they now receive the curses for their disobedience. Thus, the death of Jesus, through the shedding of his blood, initiates a new covenant. By a better sacrifice, one unlike that Passover lamb who is sacrificed again and again and again in many ways like the lamb uh, and the bulls and the goats sacrificed on the day of atonement. No, this one does not need to be repeated. Why? Because this new covenant, Jeremiah 31, if you want to find a New Testament explanation of it, you go to Hebrews 8, 1 through 13, this new covenant is a better agreement because not only now is God satisfied, but also his people are able to keep the agreement because the agreement is kept by our being in Christ. In other words, yes, we keep the covenant, but actually he keeps it for us. And therefore it is a certain covenant because God is the guarantor, both on the front side and the back side as well. Thus, The cup represents the fact that Jesus shed his blood in death and and died to pay the penalty due unto us for our sin. In fact, the last line of that paragraph, it speaks of a covenant relationship with God in which he says, I will be your God and you shall be my people. In other words, when we take the bread and the fruit of the vine, we're saying to God, we are your people. And you are our God, and we will be faithful and loyal to you. Another facet of the Lord's Supper and its meaning. Number three, commemoration. Do this in remembrance of me, which may be the one that we're most familiar with and most readily comes to mind. Some Christians believe that when the minister, of, uh, or pre, the minister of priest, or the minister of priest, uh, pronounces the words, "This is my body," and "This is my blood." The bread actually becomes the literal body of Christ, and the wine actually becomes the literal blood of Christ. Indeed, This is the view of the Roman Catholic Church, and this is a teaching known as transubstantiation. If you will, for just a moment, turn to the very last page of the notes, you will see that I've included there for you a chart that gives you the four major views on the Lord's Supper. You can see starting in the upper left hand corner, transubstantiation, the view of the Roman Catholic Church, the bread and the wine literally change into the body and the blood of Christ, the significance. The recipients then partakes of Christ who is being sacrificed. And I've added in my notes since I put these together the word again, who is being sacrificed again in the mass to atone for sins. In other words, sometimes theologians refer to the Catholic view as Christ's bloodless sacrifice. And every time the uh, uh, ordinance or the sacrament, as they would call it, of the Lord's Supper takes place, that is literally his body and literally blood. Now, they'd say to your senses, uh, they invoke uh, Aristotelian philosophy here who makes a, a distinction between what something appears to be. In other words, when you take the ordinance, uh, the sacrament, uh, it, it looks like bread and, and wine. Uh, it, it smells like bread and wine. It feels like bread and wine. It even tastes like bread and wine, but actually in its essence, it is the body and the blood of Jesus who is being sacrificed all over again. Second view, consubstantiation, the Lutheran position, the bread and the wine contain the body and blood of Christ, but do not literally change. There's just a slight difference between the transubstantiation view and the consubstantiation view. Thus, Christ is actually present in, with, and under the elements. And the recipients receive forgiveness of sins and confirmation of one's faith through partaking of the elements, but they must be received also through the act or the presence of faith. A third view, spiritual presence held by Presbyterians, those in the reformed tradition, and even some Baptists. And I would add uh, among some Baptists, I myself have some sympathy for this particular view. I don't think it excludes the fourth view. I think it simply uh, deepens and, and broadens the understanding of that view. Christ is not literally present in the elements, but there is a spiritual presence of Christ when we observe the Lord's Supper. In other words, God is omnipresent. But when we gather for the preaching of the Word and prayer and singing and so on, there's a sense in which maybe the presence of God is not greater, but our awareness of His presence is somewhat increased. Well, then when you come to something like the ordinance of baptism or the ordinance of the Lord's Supper, there is a sense in which our awareness of His presence is greater, it's heightened, it grows deeper, at least it ought to. And so perhaps I would not say he's any more present than he normally is, but our awareness of his presence is greater than it normally is. I think we could make that argument. And therefore recipients receive grace through partaking of the elements or experience the presence of Christ through the ordinance. But there's nothing salvific at all about this, all right? Then finally, the memorial view, which is the view of uh, traditionally of Baptist, Mennonites, uh, E. Free Bible Church traditions, Christ is not present physically or spiritually in the elements, and that would be consistent with the third view as well. And primarily, the recipients are commemorating the death of Christ as they partake of uh, this ordinance. Now, because there are so many Roman Catholics around the world. And because there are so many Roman Catholics even in America, I do think it is, uh, incumbent upon us to at least point out why we see that view in particular as being a misunderstanding of the biblical text. So go back to number three, commemoration. Do this in remembrance of me and I list for you four reasons why I don't believe the transubstantiation view can withstand the scrutiny of the Bible. Number one, the words, this is my body and this is my blood, clearly ought to be understood figuratively. If Jesus had meant that the wine becomes his blood, why didn't he use the word become? Uh, this is exactly what we have in John chapter 2 when Jesus and his mother were at the wedding in Cana, and the text says that the water there became wine. Further, Jesus was right there when he voiced these words. It's highly unlikely the disciples would have taken them in a literal sense. Number two, the Lord's Supper had its origin in the Jewish Passover. This feast was a memorial, a reminder of the Exodus by the use of symbols. And so the use of symbols there would certainly imply that you have the use of symbols when he inaugurates the Lord's Supper. Thirdly, the festivals in the pagan religions at this time were also symbolic. It would have required a clear explanation if the Lord's Supper was to be taken in a literal sense. I think that's the weakest of the arguments. But again, uh, my friend Mark Rafel puts that one forward. Then fourthly, Jesus said, quote, do this in remembrance of me. And he said this very carefully and very precisely. In fact, he said it twice. Thus, we can uh, we eat bread and we drink the wine, the fruit of the vine, as a reminder, not as the literal or real thing. In other words, and here's the real problem with the Roman Catholic view. The Lord's Supper is not a new or another offering of Christ's sacrifice. Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 28 makes it crystal clear that he died once and for all for sin and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. He does not need to be and he is not being sacrificed again and again and again and again and again as is taught by the transubstantiation view. Furthermore. There is no idea presented that by a physical participation of the blood, of the bread and the wine, that a person receives saving grace from God. No, we receive saving grace by faith, putting our trust in Jesus. Number four, there is an element of participation or community. Paul says that the Lord's Supper is a teaching given by Christ and handed on to you. There is a plural pronoun used there. The commands to eat and drink are in the plural, verse 26. So this instruction is given to a community, a community of believers, those who are followers of Jesus. Now, hang on in a moment, because I'm going to put before you an issue that is controversial with some people. But I'll make the point, I think, that we normal, Well, this church... I think practice it in the right way. And certainly I'll tell you why I would do certain things and not certain things when it comes to participating in the Lord's Supper. Next paragraph then. The covenant binding us to God through the death of Jesus creates a community. Thus, by participating in the communal meal, we are bound not only to the Lord Jesus, but we also, in a sense, bind ourselves to one another. Thus, we enjoy fellowship with Christ in a deep and mysterious way when we come to his table and we enjoy fellowship in this deep and mysterious way with one another. Five, expectation, future hope. Paul commands the Corinthians to continue this ceremony until the Lord Jesus comes. This celebration then is one of hope, no certain hope. Jesus Christ will return to this earth bodily and Physically, the supper celebrates wonderfully this truth. Then number six, proclamation or evangelism. Paul says that by performing the ceremony of the Lord's Supper, we proclaim the death of the Lord Jesus. Thus, the Lord's Supper dramatizes in symbolic fashion the central facts of the Christian faith and announces these facts to all who would be there to watch and to observe in a very simple way. Those who do not belong to Jesus can see tangibly and understand through these simple actions that the Lord Jesus gave his life for us. In fact, in a very odd sort of a way, uh, God used the Lord's Supper to bring me to faith in Christ. You say, how so? If I could sit with my grandmother when I was a little boy, which I always tried to do when we had the Lord's Supper, being a grandmother... She would bend the rules, and she would get an extra piece of bread, and she would get an extra cup, and she would hide it from my parents. And then when we were taking, she would slot it to me, and I'd eat that thing and drink that thing. Well, if I sat with my mom and dad, they wouldn't do that. And in fact, I can remember one Sunday night when the Lord's Supper was observed. Uh, my parents would not let me have a piece of bread they would not let me have a little cup of grape juice I began to cry I got a spanking for crying I never have understood the the rationale of that but anyway I got a spanking got home and said well why didn't I get to participate and my mother said because you're not a member of the church which to a little boy made no sense I said I I come to church as much as you do I'm here Sunday morning Sunday night Wednesday night you sing in the choir on Thursday nights I go to the nursery on Thursday I mean I should I should have have a room down at the church I'm there so often and still she would not let me take the Lord's Supper because she said I was not a member of the church which then I said well I am She said, no you're not a Christian well it at least caused me to stop and think what do you mean I am not a Christian and she used that to explain more fully to me the gospel I did not come to the Lord that night but I still remember that. Even today, I'm 53 now, and I still remember very distinctly that conversation all these many years later. And so my parents, I think, uh, could have maybe done it in a nicer, sweeter, kinder way to their precious little boy. But uh, they did use that as a moment to give me instruction concerning the gospel. Next paragraph, then. Since the Lord's Supper, then, is an expression of continuing in the faith. It follows logically that. Now, you ought to mark this. Not everyone agrees with this that only baptized believers should participate. By eating the bread and drinking the cup, we are identifying with Jesus Christ as Lord, and there is a prior identification with Christ as Lord through the act of baptism. Thus, we are saying that when he died, he died for my sins. When he poured out his blood, it was his sacrificial death which initiated a new covenant, a new relationship between us and our Creator God. Finally, the text says, or two last things, we must recognize and distinguish the body of the Lord. By participating in this celebration, we do enjoy, as I said earlier, deep fellowship with the Lord Jesus. Paul says that just as those who participate in pagan religious festivals are actually participating with demonic spirits, so those who belong to Jesus and who are participants are actually involved in a deeply spiritual participation with Jesus Christ. Finally, we must examine and judge ourselves. The ceremony is a way of saying, I am continuing in my relationship with Jesus Christ. If our behavior is contrary to our confession, bottom line, we're lying. So if we don't examine our lives, acknowledge our sins and turn from them, we will be disciplined by the Lord. And by the way, the Bible also seems to indicate in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, That if there is a believer that has been disciplined by our fellowship because of his sin, which is public, his sin, which is serious, and his sin, which is unrepented, though we would still invite him to come and hear the preaching of the word, hoping that that would bring conviction and repentance in his life. If we were to observe the ordinance of the Lord's Supper, we would be right. And in fact, I think we would have to deny him participation in the Lord's Supper based upon first Corinthians chapter five. And so, again, we examine ourselves, and if we are not repentant, then we invite the discipline of the Lord, both the Lord directly and the Lord through his body. But I do agree with those who say we our goal is not to abstain from the supper. Rather, we should examine ourselves, repent of our sin, and then participate. Now, if we move to close, let me make four additional theological considerations for your reflection. Number one. Nathan Finn, a church history professor at the seminary, well says, Baptism represents our initial union with Christ at conversion. But the Lord's Supper represents our ongoing identity with the Savior as his committed followers. And I think that is a very fair and good statement. Thus, baptism and the Lord's Supper are related ordinances. The Great Commission sets forth the pattern of baptism preceding teaching which therefore would precede teaching about the Lord's commands, which would include the Lord's Supper. In Acts chapter 2, verses 41 through 42, baptism preceded the devotion to breaking of bread, a likely reference to the Lord's Supper. So question, should we allow someone who claims to be born again, but not baptized, should we allow them to participate in the ordinance of The Lord's Supper. I would argue that the Bible teaches that the answer is no. That only those who have publicly identified themselves with Christ through the ordinance of believers' baptism are the right and proper participants of the Lord's Supper. Two. The Baptist Faith and Message affirms the local church as the contextual prerequisite for the Lord's Supper in its statement being a church ordinance. Thus, the Lord's Supper is a corporate act of the body of Christ. Paul affirmed the corporate nature of the Lord's Supper by his fivefold use of the phrase, come together, in 1117, 33, and 34. Thus, the one loaf of the Supper portrays the unity of the church. Paul thus admonished the Corinthian believers to partake of the Supper only after properly recognizing the body of Christ. Therefore, now watch this. A convention meeting, a home Bible study, a wedding, or a family gathering, these are not the proper context for the observance of the Lord's Supper. Several years ago, I uh, had the joy of performing the wedding ceremony of two very dear friends that were about the same age as as Charlotte and me, and uh, the bride-to-be informed me that she wanted me to serve them communion. Uh, at their wedding. And so I said, well, um, Becky, here, here's the deal. I believe the Lord's Supper can never be served to only two people. And uh, I actually believe it should be served almost always. I would have a little footnote where I can make rare occasional exceptions, but I believe the Lord's Supper should be observed with the gathered body of believers when they come together for, for worship. But I said... Here's the deal. I will have to inform everyone at your wedding that if they are to participate in the Lord's Supper, they can only do so if they are a baptized believer in Jesus Christ and that if they participate and are not baptized believers in Christ, they will eat and drink to themselves damnation. She decided that she no longer wanted the Lord's Supper to be a part of her wedding ceremony. Now, having said that, uh, and there are good friends of mine who would disagree. Would I be disturbed, for example, if there were to be, say, persecuted Christian believers in prison uh, somewhere around the world who came together as two or three or four uh, to observe the Lord's Supper as fellow believers, though they technically were not a part of the gathering of a local church? That would not bother me. That would not disturb me. Uh, We did not do it, but uh, had some of our students uh, asked last week that as we were worshiping together there in uh, Nairobi, that we might as brothers and sisters in Christ, those scattered around the world, brought together for a few moments, uh, for a few days together, uh, had they asked that I consider serving them the Lord's Supper, as something unique and sort of out of the ordinary but still something that we could do as brothers and sisters gathered together those scattered around the world I probably could have been convinced to do that I don't find anything heretical about it I grant it's not the normal context in which the Lord's Supper would be observed but I do not find it so abnormal uh, unscriptural uh, clearly unbiblical that I could not participate in that way but uh, well, I'll extend it one more step, and I don't even know what our policy is, Brother Bill, but say we have a shut-in, uh, a man or a woman that loves the Lord dearly, but because of uh, some type of disability, some type of malady, some type of issue, they're simply not able to be with us when we come together, but they love the Lord Jesus and would desire that the pastor might come occasionally and share with them the Lord's supper. Would I uh, blow up, have a hissy fit, and be all angry if our church did that no if our church i find out doesn't do that i'm not upset about that either i think the argument for the the rightness or wrongness of that could go in fact i don't think it's right or wrong i think that's the wrong category to even have the discussion and so it would not bother me is that the normal pattern no but is it something that is unscriptural something that is clearly contrary to the spirit of what we're reading here i don't think so and so again, I do believe that a convention, I would have a, I would be uncomfortable if the SBC decided, fact, we baptized a few years ago, Brother Bill, and it bothered me. I don't think the Southern Baptist Convention is the right place for us to be, uh, observing the ordinance of baptism. That takes place under the watch care of a local church. But I didn't walk out. I didn't throw my program at anybody. I didn't start screaming and yelling. I fumed a little bit, but that's all right. I I got over it, and I've moved on, and I'm here tonight. So we'll move to number three. The Baptist Faith, the message, highlights obedience as an aspect of the theological meaning of the supper. Jesus commands his disciples, do this. Thus, the nature of the supper is an act of obedience. It prompts the question, then, how frequently should the supper be observed? And there are churches that observe it every week. There are churches that do it monthly. When I was a little boy growing up at the Ben Hill Baptist Church in Atlanta, Georgia, we observed the ordinance quarterly. Well, the Bible does not contain specific guidelines, but I do think the principle is frequent observance is the correct answer. Well, you say, well, what does the word frequent mean? It means frequent. Number four, (laughs) the Lord's Supper is not a gloomy memorial of a dead departed teacher. In His wonderful book, Biblical Foundations for Baptist Churches, John Hammett writes that remembrance is a recalling of an event with such vividness and power that it affects the present, bringing all the benefits of Christ's death to bear. Thus, by participation in the Lord's Supper, we remember joyfully, gladly, excitedly the most wonderful event in cosmic history. And therefore, we proclaim this dramatic event through the symbols of the lord's supper and in so doing we do memorialize and remember his death but as he said himself do this in remembrance of me for you anticipate his coming again as you do so i will say this and i'll close i'm grateful that there has been a deepening and a more uh, healthy understanding of the lord's Supper since the time i was a little boy uh, when I was a small boy, the Lord's Supper was always tacked on to the end of a evening worship service. And I have to be honest with you. I hated the Lord's Supper. I hated it. You say, why? Well, I'm sure if they were diagnosing it back then, I would have been diagnosed with, you know, uh, being ADD. And, you know, the idea of a, of a little boy somewhere between the age of, of three and whatever age, but let say three and twelve, sitting there... For an hour and then having to sit there another extra twenty minutes—that was just my hell on earth. That was just sheer agony, pain, disdainful, and furthermore, because we ta- by the way we did baptism the same way, brother, it got tacked on at the end of a service as an afterthought. And so, for much of my life, until I got older and understood the Bible, baptism didn't seem to be a big deal. It's something you did. our church once every month or two tacked on to the end of a service and the Lord's Supper was something you did once a quarter tacked on to the end of the service I'm so grateful that today churches understand better that it ought not to be tacked on to the end but ought to be incorporated into the very fabric of that service when we observe those two things because like the word of God Both baptism and the Lord's Supper is a proclamation of the gospel. And therefore, they should be honored. They should be deemed important. They should be central when they are observed, when the body comes together for worship. Heavenly Father, thank you so much that you have given us two wonderful ordinances, baptism and the Lord's Supper, to recall all that we have in Jesus looking back to his death, burial, and resurrection, and also looking forward to his coming again. And I thank you that the Lord's Supper clearly teaches that we do not uh, worship a dead Savior, but a living, risen one who is alive today and who is coming again. Help us, Lord, then, each and every time we come to the table to examine ourselves, to make sure that we are right with you, right with one another, And may it never be that we would take of it in an unworthy fashion, but always, Lord, honoring you, loving you, and glorifying you. This we ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you again for listening to this chapel message from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. If you are thinking about theological education on the undergraduate or graduate level, including doctoral studies, we hope that you consider us.